Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm George Chen, and you're listening to SubDoc, a show about the world of documentary film. Today, I'm talking to the filmmaker Rodney Asher, whose latest doc is A Glitch in the Matrix, uh, available on Hulu. We've had Asher on the show before. He's made really inventive genre-bending docs like Room 237 and The Nightmare. A Glitch in the Matrix is a look at the increasingly popular simulation theory, using first-person accounts, Philip K. Dick lectures, and, of course, The Matrix trilogy. Other interviews include Chris Ware, Nick Bostrom, Eric Davis, and Emily Pottist. And the soundtrack score by composer Jonathan Snipes, friend of the show, just came out on vinyl from our pals Death Bomb Arc. I met up with Rodney for my first in-person interview in over a year, uh, depending on whether you believe there's such a thing as meeting in person. So check out Glitch first, because there may be spoilers in this conversation. Or if you're okay with that, just dive right into my conversation with Rodney Asher. So, Rodney, thank you for coming on SupDoc. Sure. It's uh, amazing to be talking with someone in person for the first time I, in a very long time. I know. And like, also, like, it, we're, we've been around long enough now that we can have return guests, and you're one of our return guests. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, was, I was saying uh, it's just, you know, I think you're here. I think I'm here in your space. I think we're in reality together in meet space. But yeah, uh, usually most of our, this is the first interview I've done in like a year that's like in person as well. So I, we've been doing Zoom for almost everything. So I mean, you've been doing obviously a lot of all the press stuff you've been doing has been over Zoom and stuff. Yeah, this. well, you know, in this movie, because you know, all the interviews were recorded digitally, it, they seemed especially, you know, apropos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was uh, listening to another interview you'd done about how you found some of the subjects on Reddit. Or is that how you, or you, no, is that how did you find the people? <laughs> you see, if we're in person, you can see me answering <laughs> questions with my face. Yeah, yeah it's like, no, you're wrong. You did of, the wrong, you're wrong. Well, that, I mean, there, there, there are some pages on Reddit that were inspirations for this project, clearly. I mean, not the least of which is the glitch page where people talk about, you know, strange experiences they've had that suggest to them that the world is a simulation. But no, we didn't find any of our interviewees specifically on on um, Reddit. I mean, what we did, you know, there's sort of, they, they break down into two groups, right? There's, you know, we call one set the eyewitnesses and the others expert testimony, though, of course, <laughs> the definition of which is which is very blurry. Um, but, you know, the eyewitnesses, the guys who are all represented by avatars, those are people who found us, right? And we did the same thing with A Nightmare where we put out, you know, we announced that we were making the film and we invited people to share their stories because, you know, regular people who've sort of gone through these sort of extreme um, experiences aren't necessarily easy for us to find, mm-hmm. you know, if they haven't talked about it publicly anywhere. So, you know, we announced it. I think there was a, there was an article on Boing Boing that did a lot to, okay. um, I think, help people 
find our our call for submissions. And then those folks found us, you know, and then, you know, the quote unquote experts, people who were able to sort of put things into context, give some background, maybe do some color commentary. Those are people that we found based on based on things that they'd written, um, you know, or done in public before. Yeah. Um, so to, to back up a little bit, what got you interested in pursuing simulation theory as a topic for a film? Well, I mean, it was an idea I was aware of for a while before, you know, it became clear that it was a movie. And, you know, it became, and, you know I tripped over it while working on The Nightmare that one of the people I spoke to um, suggested that the figures that he saw while he was in that, you know, sort of heightened state of consciousness, that they were people, you know, on the other side of the simulation, you know, the engineers, the programmers, what have you. And I didn't know what he meant at first, you know, and he said, you know, are you aware of simulation theory? And just the name was very evocative and I might have been able to guess my way halfway there, but I didn't, I, I wasn't really familiar with it with it as an idea. And this would have been, I guess, 2013, maybe 2013, 2014, depending. Um, but you know, very quickly that opened up a new rabbit hole to play in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I discovered, I think, you know, one of the, I think one of the big milestones in the mainstreaming of the idea of simulation theory and the, you know, the, 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 the idea that we could be living in a simulation, not just as a science fiction idea, but as, a possibility that people took seriously. It was like that Nick Bostrom article, mm -hmm. um, although that goes back to 2003. Um, I think that's a real milestone in, in people's awareness of that idea. And I just, you know, kind of kept track of it. And, you know, I would start reading about Mandela effects and start to see those glitch stories. And then Elon Musk talked about it at that coding conference. And, you know, I was certain that I was going to be really, really late, you know, that there were going to be a half dozen people to beat me to the punch because, you know, from my point of view, it just seemed like such an obvious, interesting topic to make a, to, to, to make a movie about, to make, you know, one of these docs about. Um, so it took, it, 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 like a lot of them, you know, it's an idea that I just kind of sat with for, a couple of years before sort of the way into it, um, you know, sort of made itself clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, watching the, I hadn't, I didn't really know a lot about the Philip K. Dick stuff either. That was, and I, you know, I consider myself a fan in general, mm -hmm. but yeah, I didn't know anything about the publication of that, the, of his, all his writings or like that French conference he was at or any of that stuff. That was all pretty new to me. Um, did you find, yeah, like getting, did you work at all with like, I think his, his estate is like his daughter or something. Did you talk to them? No, we talked like to, we found that, um, we, we found that via this French company that sort of a science, um, um, journalism, they come to that, you know, I, I think they might've been at the conference back in 1977. Um, you know, so there's actually another filmmaker who did a, a Philip K. K. Dick project who kind of turned us on to it. And then we tracked it down um, to that French company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. The, yeah. The, the animation stuff I wanted to talk about as well. Like do, who, who do you work with to do all the animation stuff? That's just really fun. Yeah, no, they did an amazing job. And, you know, I first started the process with 
uh, mind bomb films. Um, my very old friend, Sid Guerin, um, who I think I talked about oh, last yeah, yeah. time because, you know, we went to college together and we worked on project after project after project. But, you know, as I was you know, doing these docs and things, him and his partner, uh, Chris Kirk, coincidentally, you know, my partner in 237 is Tim Kirk, but these coincidences have a way of, of, of attracting themselves to us. They have started this company, Mindbomb, where they do, you know, amazing animation, lots of like title sequences and, you know, sort of um, motion graphics for indie docs. You know, like they're the guys who animated um, um, Jodorowsky's Dune, Jodorowsky's Dune and Blackfish and um, movie, movie after movie after movie. And we've worked together, you know, he, they did the titles and graphics for Nightmare and things. But this one was a real big step up because there was much more elaborate character animation. So what we wound up doing is we built the team out a little bigger and we invited um, this animator that uh, Sid knew, uh, Lorenzo Fonda, who's a director and an animator and, you know, unbelievably talented. And this other guy, Davey Force, who he and his partner, Nick, had done. We've had friends in common for a long time, going back to sort of our San Francisco days, but um, we'd never really worked together. But, you know, we sat down and, <laughs> and talked and became a little friendly after he and his partner, Nick, did this unbelievable, insane um, uh, remix of The Shining called The Chickening. <laughs> You know, and if you saw that, I'm sure it broke your brain. It's like a you know, garbage pail kids version of The Shining come to incredibly exquisite three-dimensional hyper real life. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and so I was, oh, maybe I can even get Davy Force to do some stuff on here. You know, so Lorenzo and Mindbomb worked on all the all stuff like the avatars. Mm -hmm. the, and the avatars were designed by this uh, amazing comic book artist, Chris Burnham who did, he's, he's done a lot of stuff with Grant Morrison. Okay. Right? So he did Batman Incorporated. He did this amazing book called um, Nameless, which is sort of midway between uh, Michael Bay's Armageddon and H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> um, and he illustrated, he, you know, so he did the sketches of the avatars, to, you know, he, he did that character design and then Mindbomb's team kind of built them out into 3D and Lorenzo animated them and then created those amazing like grid worlds. The that, grid worlds, yeah. I love yeah. Those, yeah. Um, and Davey did this sort of the more hyper real stuff with the guy watching the movie in the theater and the <sighs> spaceship at the end and the brain in the vat and all that stuff is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as this, as this one man team, kind of a ringer. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about like, there's a scene that's a very, there's sort of like a, a, a turn in the film. I feel like when we get to Joshua Cook's story sure. and it's like the animation style also seems to change. Cause then it's sort of like, I noticed with that, it's like, it's all like, weirdly we're in an architecture office. It's weirdly architectural and not like you get the, the narration coming from Joshua, but you don't see figures, yeah. which I found really interesting on this second viewing. I just noticed that sort of different element. Yeah, well, and that was a whole different style, mm -hmm. right? Um, Lorenzo did a lot of the heavy lifting of the animation. He did, him and his partner Tommaso did the fly through the animation and things. But what we did, you know, and that was, you know, that production happened, you know, in the second half of the movie. 
Um, and not long before lockdown, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're real. Like if we had, would have, we had postponed it a couple of times. And if we did that tour, if we did that again, we might not have been able to shoot it. Mm-hmm. But you know, the process we settled on is something called photogrammetry, mm-hmm. where you, like, in a space like this, right? You bring in sort of these two long tripods that are like nine feet tall on a kind of a rolling stand, and. One of them has sort of a laser measurer, mm-hmm. right? It shoots these invisible light beams out in every direction and you move it, you know, sort of like through a, as a grid, you kind of march it through uh, the room. And then you also, then you follow it with a second stand that's got like three, you know, high-end uh, DSLRs mm-hmm. that are pointing different ways. And the idea is that the laser machine will take a measurement of the space to build like a 3D wireframe model of the room. Right. It's like archaeological technology. They use this for like archaeological digs. They do. And the guys who yeah. did it, like we brought in, you know, a special team of ringers that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, um, is it Blue Ice maybe? I should know. Um, but they're amazing and we could give you a link. And they've done stuff where they've done like in photogrammetry, like walkthroughs of like these you know, ancient Egyptian tombs and things, right? Like ways for people to experience spaces that you know, most people mm-hmm. will never be allowed to visit, right? So ancient tombs and um, they also have some amazing like cliffside exteriors. Um, and so those guys brought in all of their gear mm-hmm. and we rented, you know, we, we treated it like a location shoot, right? That we found a house that was laid out the way that Joshua described the scene okay. and dressed it up, you know, to be... 2003. Three. Yeah, that's when I that, think when it happened. Yeah, yeah. Strangely enough, the same time that Nick Bostrom <laughs> wrote oh, his paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and built a little... Com- Actually, we had to rent two places because, you know, a basement is a pretty important part of the story and basements are hard to find in LA. So yeah. the one basement that we found in the valley, the rest of the house w- didn't match. So we shot the basement in one house and then drove across town and shot the um, bedrooms in the hallway and the kitchen and stuff. And then those guys created the model. Um, and it was interesting, like looking at some photogrammetry online, you know, it's, you know, I, I like to... You know, on in in many ways, sort of embrace you know, random the ran, randomness and errors and things. Mm-hmm. You know, and we found that sometimes they use photogrammetry for real estate. Yeah, I've seen right. that. Like yeah, it's like a way that you can, yeah, yeah. So you can click through the different mm-hmm. spaces without having to you know drive all over the place. And there's a fun for me. There was something that I really loved. They called it dollhouse mode, mm-hmm. which is when you come out of the house. Oh yeah, you did you, that. Yeah. In the film. yeah. And yeah. you see all the rooms kind of stacked on yeah. each other. Yeah. You know, which is something that you could never do in a real world shoot. Mm-hmm. And I loved you know, and I loved the look of that mm-hmm. for. Um, well, I mean, because we clearly this is not filmed at the scene; that this is a reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in many ways, like you, you commented, how there were no people there, and mm-hmm. you know that came after sort of thinking about what's this is. This is a pretty harrowing scene. It's, it's gnarly yeah. in, in, in in a lot of ways, you know. Um, but it was a pretty early decision that if we didn't have any figures in there, no, mm-hmm. there weren't any people. But this is more like a weeks later 
walkthrough of mm-hmm. the space or maybe like a even, forensics thing is kind of what I was thinking was happening. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe this is some kind of like cop forensic FBI um, view through the place or even maybe more or maybe it's even like Joshua's memory of it years right. later that he's thinking about the space and the path that he walked and, you know, to both of those ends, mm-hmm. you know, embracing and a lot of the imperfections, right? That yeah. at first glance, that stuff looked very, very real. But, you know, whenever you get close to something, like you can see the way that like a phone melts into a table and a lamp melts into a wall. And, you know, I really liked that imperfect edge, mm-hmm. both just, you know, as a kind of a a rough aesthetic, but also if this is in some ways trying to be Joshua's memory and like, you know, I don't know, this happened 18 years ago now Mm -hmm. and he remembers it to this day in such amazing detail that, you know, what's going through his mind when he relives this, you know, him, I'm sure he's imagining the space. And although that memory is still very vivid, Mm -hmm. it must be fraying, you know, around the edges a little bit. Um, You know, and a lot of that is again, well, you know what? I was going to be faux humble and say, you know, that's just a lucky, it, <laughs> you know, it, it's a lucky coincidence that the way it looked kind of matches these after the fact mm-hmm. um, rationalizations that I'm giving for, for why I wanted to look that way. Mm-hmm. But no, I remember we did look at some like perfect photogrammetry, some perfect high end photogrammetry and some lower end DIY stuff. And I did like a lot of the errors. And Mm -hmm. and early in the talk, me, Sid, and Lorenzo were batting around possible ways to make it worse, (laughs) to to, to show the degradation of of memory. So we were like, well, these guys are doing such a good job. It's going to look too perfect. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could create, you know, and these guys are are so far ahead of where I am, you know, um, technically that they're throwing out ideas like, well, maybe we could you know, create a program that would throw away every third photo or every seventh photo okay. so that it would have to stitch this together with fewer pieces and they would smudge more. Or maybe we could, you know, sort of rem- make a copy of the geometry and like compress it so that to introduce more noise and more yeah. so it's like skinning it onto the surfaces or something yeah yeah, yeah and like the, the so reminds, imperfections were yeah. something that we were very conscious of wanting yeah. to introduce early on yeah and and there's a term that came up i think it might have been emily but lossiness was an interesting like yeah and then there's like these sort of blurred moments where just people are just like dr- like draining down kind of like the, the images start to blur down and stuff yeah yeah well you know and that's also you know kind of goes with that whole idea of um you know, from Philip K. Dick and also from the Matrix film of glitches in the Matrix, of errors, of yeah. things that aren't reproduced perfectly and how those, you know, are, are you know, fraught with significance. Yeah. I also noticed, like, you're in the film, which I feel like in the other films I've seen you do, I feel like you're not. Maybe you're... you're, you're I'm in it very... Well, I'm in it... Well, yeah. no, I'm in it about as much as I am in The Nightmare, which is mm-hmm. to say a very small amount, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, that... I think there's one shot of me in a mirror in the nightmare. And in this one, there's like one little shot of me on Paul's phone at the beginning when we're doing that first Skype call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, and that's about as comfortable as, 
you know, I couldn't, I, I'm a fan of a lot of his stuff, but I could never be a, a Michael Moore mm-hmm. type standing in front of the camera with a microphone. Right, right, right. Kind of host. I'm a thousand percent too <laughs> self-conscious for that. Mm-hmm. But I do like the way that Errol Morris will often, will often infrequently, the way that every once in a while you'll hear his off-screen voice. Yeah, yeah. You know, and... um you know, so that's kind of where, like, a once in a while when I need to be, you know, and also as a way of, I, I don't know, kind of being upfront of, you know, I'm trying to be as, um, I'm trying to be faithful to the way all these people tell their stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as much as I can, mm-hmm. um, but nonetheless. This is a construct. This is a construction that went through my fingers, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to present this as something that's truly objective. Right. So allowing me to be visible around the edges once in a while, I think, um, you know, goes to that end. Yeah. And then there's also, I, I noticed a female narrator. I don't know. I didn't know who that was, but that was, I, you know, like, cause I saw it a couple months ago and then I just watched it again. So like all these thoughts are coming to my head about like, sort of, yeah, no, she's not out of, the, she's not out of the blue though. She, um, let's see, she appeared, that's Buff. That's my very old friend, Buffy, who goes back to my pre-LA life in um, in, in San Francisco from where we met when I did a, a music video for her uh, female-led Black Sabbath cover band, Bride of Ozzy. Oh, okay. And she, and she also did the begin the opening narration of the S from Hell. Okay. Uh, a short that I did that, you know, really kind of broke, that really in, in a lot of ways really put me on this path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she is, in 237, you see her hands put the tape into the VCR. Oh, okay. And in the nightmare, you see her as the mom of like baby Forrest in the crib before those sort of static aliens come. You know, so Buffy needs to um, have appear in some way, shape, or form. But her narration in this is also, it's very much like the narration she did in The S from Hell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the tone of it is, you know, just an embarrassingly flagrant, blatant steal from the title sequence of Escape from New York. Yeah. Yeah, and and then like yeah, the fonts and stuff are very nicely chosen as well. I love all the fonts for all that stuff. Well, that was, well I mean, Sid is a, a font stuff, maniac, yeah. but they created a custom font for this that was based on, you know, he could tell you more, but uh, based on a very specific, you know, early computer generated typeface. Yeah, it, it sort of like yeah, exactly rings into like all the cover art of like the dick books from like yeah. the 70s and 80s and stuff. Yeah. Well, and one more thing about Buffy, this is funny because this is something me and Jonathan, Jonathan Snipes who did the music and sound design um that's sort of like we did something with her voice that nobody has cut on to. Mm. So, um uh, I guess at this point I'm going to give up waiting for someone else to, <laughs> to notice to ask it. the question, yeah. But what we did with her voice, um, and that was, boy, that was recorded under quarantine, and it had to, like, drop off gear with her in front of her apartment, and she was recording in her closet while Jonathan and I were Skyping, and it seemed, like, really difficult back then to figure out how to do that. But, like, you know, she recorded more or less straight, and first he had that sort of... Rob, he, he, you know, he sort of filtered it and processed it to, you know, to to make it sound kind of like an artificial synthesized voice. Mm-hmm. And there are synthesized singing voices that appear 
later in the movie. Oh. And so we had that all the way through. But by the time we got, when it came time to wrap up the Josh Cook story, her robo voice just sounded so tacky to me um, in relation to, you know, the seriousness of that story. So what we figured out was that we started her with a heavy process, synthesized, you know, Android voice at the beginning. And each time that you heard her, you know, like a half a dozen times, it became progressively more human, oh. you know, and it would be maybe sort of a test to see whether people would notice that her voice was changing or think mm -hmm. that they were getting used to it, mm -hmm. <laughs> thinking that, that, that they were, that which was kind of an echo of like at a certain point, one of my favorite lines, Paul talks about the fact that if he, if he thought people were more robotic as a kid and he recognizes their humanity more now, mm -hmm. the two possible conclusions to draw is that either he had a problem um, recognizing um, you know, their humanity or the simulation is making people more convincing now. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> right. They, I, or, or they've evolved and how can you tell? And, and, and what a gigantic, important choice that is. You know, what a binary, what a frightening binary to be switching between. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, oh, I think we we're trying to do something similar with her of, wait, is she getting more human or am I? Yeah, because it's like the vo sort of a voice of God's type in intro and then and then like yeah I, I it it I now that you say that I'm aware of it but like unconsciously I don't know if I ever picked up on like I do remember in the beginning it's like okay so there's this authority voice and then you're also in it and then but that's like the main sort of framing voice but then that I didn't I, I felt like I did notice that there was something going on but it was not conscious to me that's what was going yeah on. well I mean it's between any two it's a pretty subtle change yeah but between the first and the last it's a it's it's, it's a very dramatic one yeah now that I'm in my mid 40s I am actually finally able to uh, deal with people as human beings and you could think of it one way if people are simulated, they're getting better and they're easier to relate to, but is it possible that I saw everyone as these sort of robotic humans walking around because I couldn't figure them out because of a problem with my brain? And that's the thing, I never want to get locked into the idea that this is all fake if in fact the reason I thought it was fake is because it was an easier way for me to deal with the complexity of human existence. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home.
Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure Equal Opportunity Lender NMLS 1717824 Terms and Conditions Apply Visit figure.com for more information For licensing information go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org I definitely want to talk about the sound components too that I noticed there was one thing that was like a song with like vocoder vocals. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that must be a Jonathan original, or is that based off what text was that based on? I was trying to remember what. Oh, the text was. it was based on. Um, I think it might be like a Roger and Hammerstein song. I mean, there's two. There's kind of two songs. There's an old hymn that they sing in the church. Okay, in the church, yeah. And, and and again, I forget the title of it, but the title is really you know on point and on message mm-hmm. with with um, with some of the themes of the movie. Similarly, that one that happens during the um, the plane sequence, oh, where that guy yeah, is during the plane. the plane. Yeah, yeah. It's a really moving piece of music. Yeah, I was like, I was like, what did? He, was there a suicide note? What was that text? I didn't know what the text was. Yeah, no, the text was. It's a cover of, you know, a song that's, I don't know, maybe 80 years old. It's a okay. Public Dome. It might be Rodgers and Hammerstein. I think, you know, I think if you look at the yeah. credits of the movie and, you know, it's com- absolutely 100% Jonathan's choice. <laughs> and, you know, I, the, you know, the first time I heard it, but, you know, it sent chills up my spine because, you know, there's all, on these projects, there's often a lot of really tricky emotional notes to hit. Um, and he has, I mean, both, I love... The sonics of his of his music, you know, just kind of the instrumentation and the vibe. But often, you know, we're trying to hit some fairly subtle emotional moments. And you know, these days, you know, because we've worked together probably seven times mm-hmm. by now, you know, we um, don't need to talk about them too much. Mm-hmm. You know, he just, he sees, and he's okay, I know what he's getting. There's that kind of shit that Rodney's always doing. And <laughs> I know the guy, I know, I know what will, I know what will work here. Right, right. And there was a picture, there was a piece of temp music there for a long time that we were hoping to license that we, that we weren't able to. But, you know, I never miss the temp tracks after Jonathan, you know, creates his, mm-hmm. his, his originals for them. Yeah, uh, and did you you had to license some music, or did the bodies at the floor song have to get? Did you? I can't we licensed. We had a we had a like. Well, we only use the lyrics, right? Not even. It's just like the whisper. Okay, the whisper. And it's there's very limited like mm-hmm. amount of uh, uh, of how much we were able to use, but we licensed um, that track by Suicide Shay at the top. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um. And, and yeah, obviously Jonathan and you have worked on Room Two Thirty Seven, The Nightmare. And um, this, and then uh, what other stuff? Oh, we, we did Primal Screen, which was a short for Shutter about uh, like kids who had been you know sort of traumatized by the trailer for Anthony Hopkins' uh, Magic. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, it's not, if you have Shutter, it's it's about a half hours like a pilot for a show that didn't get picked up. We did. Um, on the ABCs of Death Part Two, I used, he did this amazing cover bolero for this you know sort of goofy comedy short that I did. Um, there was another sort of horror short I did for Hulu called um, "Haunted Hor- Haunted Horrifying Sounds from Beyond the Grave" um, that he that, that that he did the music for um, the El Duce tapes. Right. He reunited his old band uh, Nilbog to perform the score for that one. Oh. And then I did a um and I did a music video for his band clipping for um 
their song. Was it the Wriggle? Wriggle. Video? Yeah. Yeah. That's like one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That, that song's awesome. amazing. Yeah. And then like, yeah, like I think I remember that was, you, you did it and like, yeah, it, the style is, is all there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jonathan, obviously like he also does all like the sound design for everything too. So yeah, he didn't do the sound design. Oh, yeah, not this for this guy, Ian Herzon did, okay. the, did the sound design for 237, but mm -hmm. Jonathan moved up to do both the sound design and the music. Um, for the nightmare and everything after, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I like the way that two three seven sounds. Ian did a he he did a great job, but there's something about one person processing every audio element, you know, mm -hmm. in marrying the music and the sound effects and the sound design, um, you know, that I think is just a you know in. An unstoppable combination, and I'm surprised it isn't more common. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it probably is like a lot of people. It's like, yeah, uh, one person doing all that work is a lot for for sure. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but yeah. I mean, it does happen. At, like you, the composer is usually done before the mix. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> arguably, he could be doing this. So he's so, um, you know, assuming he's not composing somebody else's movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with the the yeah, like so even with like the animations of the interviews, like he had to like do this kind of the mastering for the audio of all that stuff as well. Yeah, oh he I mean he doesn't do it as a one man team yeah, that he's yeah. got people to help clean up the dialogue and things, but he you know, he he he, he supervises the mix and he mm -hmm. does all the processing and all the sound design and integrates Music, sound effects, you know, dialogue, all coming through the same, mm -hmm. through the same hands. Um, I, w I was going to tell you a funny thing of like my little brother, who's a lot younger than me. He's an avid gamer. And then we were having this family call and he just mentioned simulation theory. Yeah. And I was just like, so he, you're telling me you think this is a simulation. And I've just been here long because like I'm like 20 years older than him. I'm like. But I remember you being born, so how can you think this? Because like I was here before you, and he's like, "No, you've just been in the simulation longer than me." I'm like, "That doesn't that doesn't make sense to me in terms of like my concept of like." I'm not I'm not sure why that invalidates simulation theory. It doesn't. I guess it doesn't invalidate it. But then he's like, also like, I yeah, he just got a goldfish. I'm like, wait, you you just told me that you believe in simulation theory, and you got a goldfish. So yeah, it doesn't right. It doesn't invalidate it. But I guess I'm just like so old school, like believing in my perceptions, I guess. It's just like, I don't know why it, it's, I think if you grew up gaming, there is definitely maybe a generational thing where like a lot of these things make more sense to you. And like, I grew up with crappier video games that were like, not very like, you know, the realism was not there. So I think oh, I just sure. have a, a hard time conceiving of like, I played chess. I never thought like I'm the knight, you know. I never thought of that like that, you know. And well, I mean, I think it, I think at this point mm -hmm. where video games are, mm -hmm. you know, and everybody's got their own interpretation, and I don't even I, I I don't necessarily believe in simulation theory so much as find it an interesting world to um, to explore. Um, but my understanding of you know the relevancy of video games. At this point, mm -hmm. you know, I'd say this at this still early stage of video games, what they are is a really interesting metaphor, right? You know, and, and, and for some reason, people really latched on Minecraft as a metaphor when they were talking uh, in um, when they were talking in Glitch, mm -hmm. you know, and it's also, you know, and part of that metaphor is I am to Ms. Pac-Man, say, as 
Is there someone who is to me what I am right. to Ms. Pac-Man? Yeah. So, so that's a metaphor, mm-hmm. right? That somebody outside of this universe with more abilities and more, and more knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, um, looking down, possibly controlling or at least, or, or at least looking in, mm-hmm. right? I mean, because Ms. Pac-Man is controlled by a player versus, say, you know, the ghosts who are right. NPCs, right, yeah. who are AI, only exist within the game. Mm-hmm. You know, in one of the first, um, I'll, I'll get back to video games in a second, but I think one of the first um, forks in the road that you get to once you start entertaining mm-hmm. simulation theory is, well, what does that mean about, you know, about people and about mm-hmm. other people, mm-hmm. right? And are is first off are you being controlled by some player out there like Ms. Pac-Man mm-hmm. or are you a ghost just can are just part of the on a circuit loop or something yeah, yeah. just part of the AI within the machine mm-hmm. you know and then the same question happens about everybody else mm-hmm. you know and there are folks who say I'm the only person and everybody else is uh you know, is a, is a AI ghost mm-hmm. um, and then there's you know the way I think well we're all equally controlled by other people, or maybe if we're all equally ghosts, you know, we're just as important, we're just as special as one another, but not necessarily tethered to a <coughs> a controlling intelligence mm-hmm. out there someplace. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about video games being crappy and now they're getting better and more realistic, that video games at this point are still a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. That you can... Right, the Plato's cave. It's like the just the yeah. Player. Then you can you, then you can talk about the way video games work and their relationship to the players and the designers as a way of trying to um, consider the implications of you know us being in a digital world. Mm-hmm. But famously, during that conference, you know what Elon Musk said um, is that if you look at the advancement. In video game technology, you know, even within both of our lifetimes, yeah. from Pac-Man or even I mean, I remember, Pong I, remember I remember Pong. <laughs> yeah, you know, like from Pong to uh, you know Fortnite or the PS5 or stuff on the Oculus. Right, right. You know, if you were you know to chart how quickly that stuff is growing, mm-hmm. you know, he says um, that you know before long, you know, and I don't know if you're talking. 20, 50, 100, 500 years, Mm -hmm. it will be at a level of reality that is indistinguishable from this world. Right. And then at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, is when we'll be capable of building a simulation. Mm -hmm. And then the tricky math that Bostrom does Mm -hmm. is, and of course this is my trying to, you know, this is me who is not, who's... 3% 3% as smart as this guy. Yeah, yeah. But my, my trying to put my head around his ideas, the notion is if you look at time, you know, from an outside perspective, mm-hmm. right? Not from where we are here in the 21st century, but if you could somehow step out of time and look at it continuously moving out to mm-hmm. infinity, that once you get to the point where there is more than one fully realistic simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, any conscious being is more likely to be simulated than real because they'll be the, because the simulated ones will outnumber them. Right. So this is like when he was trying to explain, 
I was trying to get this down, the hypothesis versus the argument. And, or like this has, like philosophy, you just yeah. kind of create like theorems or something, right? And yeah, I was, I, I guess I just get that I'm like, it's mathematically more likely if you believe certain things have happened already or, or are about to happen, well, eventually will happen. Or will eventually happen. Because yeah. if in a thousand years mm-hmm. they'll be able to build two 21st century Earths that look completely real. And it, if you believe that that is true, or if let's say it is true, mm-hmm. according to that notion, it's more likely that we're in one of those. Right. Because they outnumber the one and only. The prime. Mm-hmm. The pr- base the reality. Base reality, right, yeah. The you know, so that's, so, so that's, yeah. um, you know, so, so, so that's one of those, so, so that's one of their kind of mind-bending arguments mm-hmm. that they use. And, um you know, so in, in, you know, Bostrom has, he calls it the trilemma mm-hmm. that, you know, three things, th- here's three possibilities. One of them must be true that mm-hmm. we will never, that simulations prove to be too difficult to build. Mm-hmm. Number two is for reasons unknown, they're possible to build, but they never get built. Mm-hmm. Ethical concerns or what have you. Uh, I don't think we're going to have that. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> and then the third possibility is if they're possible, yeah. then it's most likely, if, if, the, if the idea is yeah. possible, then it's most likely that we're in one. Yeah. And, and there, I, it definitely there were, I don't. I'm and like, he uses math yeah. to talk about how much computation power it would take to build one of these things. And of course that math is, a hundred percent incomprehensible to yeah. uh, someone with a puny brain like mine. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm, I'm, I was like just thinking, like I feel like there'd be more product placement, but at the same time, like there's a lot of product. There's placement. a lot of product placement. There's a lot of product placement already, so I think that's well, the only argument. Is like let's sell things to the people in the game. Like, or did you watch this film? Uh, Life 2.0 about Second Life. Oh, it's an amazing movie. Yeah, yeah. I was really thinking about Second Life because I never played uh, the game that we're talking about, Massive Effect, Minecraft. Um, so, yeah, like I was like thinking about Second Life a lot when just even like the formatting of, uh, of, of like, of, yeah, when you show bits of Minecraft, that's what I thought of. Was yeah, I know. So that's a great movie. Yeah. And that's like shows like real people in our our version of reality but they've spent all they've created like empires and financial investments into this alternate and romantic world. relationships and, yeah they yeah those that really worked out poorly for that couple <laughs> um but yeah I, I think you get to a thing that I, I i think this is kind of like near the end of the film you talk about sort of like well what are the ethical implications of this stuff it's like on one hand, you completely go solipsistic and like everyone else is like just like uh, the ghost for you to fuck with. And then you get someone like Joshua Cook who ends up killing his family. And then, you know, these other no, people. No, to be fair, his yeah. case is very, very complicated and nuanced. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, yeah. sure. But for argument's sake, keep going. Well, well so, yeah. So the, the four people that you talk to, it feels like. They're all trying to like function in. First, uh, I think they're trying to function in, in a way that they can sort of still function in society. Or I, I mean, it seems like they sought you out when they found out about this, though. So they definitely wanted to like talk about it, but like they probably don't just 
bring us up at cocktail parties, right? Or maybe they do. I've got no, I've got no, no idea what they're like. Yeah, because you've never <laughs> met them in real. Well, I, 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 well, I mean, one of them I've met. I think okay. Paul, I probably know the best of any of them. Okay. Um, and but and we've hung out, but only in virtual reality. Right, 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 right. Like because <laughs> there hasn't <laughs> been. Also, like, yeah, we put on our Oculuses and we hung out in. Um, <laughs> and, and played virtual ping pong and went oh, to nice. this rec room and were being chased by and hassled by virtual teenagers. <laughs> yeah, I, I've messed around with Oculus a little bit, but not to the point where like I've ever interacted with someone else in the same like yeah. same environment or anything. Like yeah. the ping pong one is like the is 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 really startling and how realistic and how social it is. Do you have a paddle and you use those, con- you, you use those okay. controllers mm-hmm. and, the, and the physics just feels right on the money. It's crazy. Whoa. Yeah. Um, did you? So, where did the? When did the film actually come out, out in festivals? Did you do a festival first? Was it Sundance? We, we, yeah, or? we did. We debuted at Sundance, okay, which yeah. was like late January, early February. Mm-hmm. But then we, um, the Magnolia, released it only like two weeks later. So you kind of already had the deal with Magnolia in place and stuff already. Yeah, yeah we. Because um, you've worked with them before. And, not really. Not like really. they, they did. They they distributed the ABCs of death, but I was really just a very small part of that. I hadn't worked directly with them. Um, you know, and they've been they've been amazing. But you know, we um, we made our deal with them a little before Sundance, okay. so that they were able to you know sort of use the Sundance bump to um, get the word out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so knowing that you had that distribution in place, then like you knew that was gonna eventually like hit like streaming services and stuff. Like, so you're just on Hulu now, right? That's like, yeah, like a week ago we yeah, went yeah. on Hulu and the Blu-ray just dropped. Oh, nice! You know, and it's playing in other. It's doing festivals and and it's it's doing it's festivals in other countries mm-hmm. and like in England the, the 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 discs have dropped there too mm-hmm. um and a lot of them is playing in pay-per-view yeah, so so it's funny cuz i was watching being like it feels like some of this production just could have happened during quarantine because all the interviews are done like this and there's so much animation it's just a very strange, it was all done before it's, quarantine. A, it's a very strange coincidence that yeah. we decided to live in that sort of zoom enhanced um world um before you know in 2019 mm-hmm. and then we were stuck living there <laughs> in the, you know, in the sort of last quarter of finishing the movie and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that just, like, just feels like a funny choice that ended up being like, you know, predictive in a way. Yeah. Um, do, how, do you think like people, okay, firstly, I want to go back to the guy, um, Lane Mistwood. Is that right? Lan Lane. Yeah. Well, brother Mistwood is Mistwood. He, uh, did you understand when he said he has a 12 day week like that? Like I was, I was having trouble, like comprehending, like he breaks up, he has like his own spreadsheet calendar. Yeah. Well, that was, his, that was his spreadsheet that yeah. we showed. Yeah. Cause I mean, before we, before we got it from him, I made up a dummy one uh-huh. to try to see what it would look like. Um, so yeah, so he created this 12 day calendar, um, and one of the and what it did for him, right, was he would see that on the third days of the week, the same kind of things would happen. On the seventh days of the eleventh days of the week, the same kind of thing would happen. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, it became kind of an astrology chart. Yeah. A, think of astrology. I wrote down astrology. Right. Well, here. because there's a story that he told. It didn't make it into the film just because of time, but that he did one of those up. And and then he and, and then he goes backwards with it as far as he can remember. 
right? Uh-huh. So if he's using this to try to spot pattern, recurring patterns, mm-hmm. patterns in his life, you know, and synchronicities and coincidences seem to be a recurring theme when these sorts of, and mm-hmm. these sorts of ideas. But there's a story he told that again, it didn't. I don't think, I, I don't think it's in the film anymore. But he talked about he did one of these for a friend. And then based on sort of recurring patterns, he realized that there was a very dangerous day, you know, happening, cu- cu- coming up, and it proved to be right. Whoa. You know, that she just barely escaped this violent oh attack gosh. on that day. You know, so, but to me, it felt a little bit like astrology that, mm-hmm. and I don't know anything about astrology, you know, but in sort of the way I've come to think about astrology or even palm reading or different mm-hmm. or, 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 or different things these days are that they are different processes that are attempting to find patterns in noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and you need, and, and this comes like after two, three, seven, I, I started to, um, come into contact with the interesting groups of people are really into synchronicities. Mm-hmm. There's like a whole community of, <laughs> of sync heads. And, um, one of the things in one passage I read in one of their papers that I really liked was that it used to be, you know, that if you wanted to get enough random noise, um, a significant enough of it to look for patterns, mm-hmm. meaningful patterns to emerge from, mm-hmm. that you would need to do things like look at the stars, look at the lines in your hand, look at the intestines that come out of a sheep. But in 21st century America, there's so many more gigantic fields of random data, mm-hmm. including pop culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, that he, but he was using, you know, um, this 12-day week as a way to... <laughs> to rearrange his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it sounds like it worked for him. It's fairly, um, I don't know of anyone else who's ever done that. No, yeah. Or, like, where, where, the, where the practice comes from. D- yeah, I, it's, I, I would just kind of want to have a whole time with that dude. And just, he's also the one that did the sensory deprivation tank, which I. And, it was, and it, was the, it was the first, and it was the first that led to the second. Oh, right. Having, having experienced all those synchronicities, he decided to look for answers by. Going into a deprivation tank mm-hmm. and trying to cut out all this stuff, yeah. Um, it's fa- and you, ju- you, ju- you just you just did one. I did one before, yeah, before like it must have been maybe very early twenty twenty. There is a place called Just Float. I did one there too. Did you do well, Just Float? Yeah, our friend well, works there. I, I did it for the film that I wanted oh. before we before we laid out that sequence. You want to get the sense of like what it's like, yeah, yeah and see if there and. He was absolutely right when he said that you could actually hear your eyelashes. And, you know, I focused on that and it was like a soft. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get that in that far down because I think my heartbeat, I could really hear that. Uh And then like I again, like the thing of just like trying to not be so in your head with your racing thoughts and also not fall asleep, right? So I think I did just straight up fall asleep at a certain point. I, I never was able to get out of my own thoughts. Yeah. So right. I, I, I never got into a, 
dreamlike metaphysical mm-hmm. state as much as I was hoping to, you know, devolve into a caveman like William Hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what was the thing that I always was afraid of. I'm like, I'm going to straight up altered states. And I'm going to just like turn into a monster or just like start, my start, head will come out. Yeah. Or, or just start to see neon parallelograms inside of exploding universes. I mean, but no, it, I mean, luckily we, it, have, <laughs> we, we can just see it in the film. We it didn't happen to experience. me. Yeah. Um, I, I have a friend who was working on this project, which is about, um, and it's funny because like I, I had a thought while watching this and it came back to me. I was just trying to remember what it was. She's doing a project where she's looking at science fiction films that use like Asian cultural uh, like motifs mm-hmm. without like really where all the characters are like non-Asian. So it's sort of like this this using so sort of shallow culture. appropriation. Kind yeah, of. kind of an appropriation thing, but also like what what does that mean? And a lot of the same texts she looks at are the same texts that are in here, right? Like uh, Blade Runner, definitely um, the the Firefly movies. I like that you also use Dark City, which I feel no one references Dark City. I'm like when I saw Dark City, I'm like I think this is better than The Matrix. Mm. I think it's it's like an alien version. It's not as like technological as The Matrix, but I felt like it sort of was a better film. Um, well, and it has a weird sort of. I think it, it falls into like Batman, like Tim Burton's Batman. Yeah, and even Mouse Gothier, and yeah. even Mouse Hunt. Which I think Tim Burton might have produced that there was like a cycle of these kind of really ambitious '90s sort of '90s '50s mm-hmm. like oh, yeah. techno noir like, yeah. but they were like cartoonish mm-hmm. techno uh, like Super Mario Brothers might be like the biggest one of those. Was it, I guess I don't think of that as very '50s, but I guess there's maybe something '50s about yeah. Um, uh, the world I'm thinking like the Dino World. Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, also like yeah with. Um, I don't remember all the mechanics of what happens in Dark City, but it's like, I was like, this is kind of the same movie, right? It's sort of like these external, uh, this this squad of aliens is kind of placing everyone and changing their memories, right? Yeah, well, which yeah. is much, um, which is not Matrix so much as um, the, as the Philip K. Dick one, um, the um, Adjustment Bureau. Oh, okay, that's also, I never saw Adjustment Bureau. You use a clip of that as well, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and, in in Philip K. Dick in his exegesis and in you know in a lot of his writing, talk, like he t- even in that speech he talks about mm-hmm. the past gets changed and a, a handful of people recognize it, mm-hmm. you know, and so that was very much about change. Like a rich man becomes a poor man. Mm-hmm. Like they would change the variables, you know, for 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 one reason or another, and that was such a the, like the, I think the two most concrete. Realizations I found of those were the adjustment bureau, where like the guy Matt Damon comes into work and everybody is frozen, and the guys are mm-hmm. you know kind of messing with them, or that dinner table that gets changed, mm-hmm. the poor family becomes a rich family overnight, and then the next day everybody's memories will reflect that that happened. Um, I'm curious more to hear about your your friend's film. Yeah, we'll so it's not a film; it's sort of like this essay, like a PowerPoint essay, and it's for like Asian futures without Asians. But I, it got me thinking. There was a, a reference in here to like maybe something to do with incarnate reincarnation, or also like she was referencing like this movie or this Netflix show, Altered Carbon, where it's sort of like you can just occupy different sleeves, right? Like that's the concept of like Altered Carbon. Like this guy is actually like this. Japanese, like, uh, you know, assassin guy, but he's in this buff white guy's body or like, you know, there's been a lot of stuff about like whitewashing stuff and like Scarlett Johansson playing Ghost in a Shell. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and just sort of like this thing of like whole thinking about 
like if there like science fiction is kind of this place where we could try to like reinvent a new way of being and but then we sort of replicate the power dynamics of of our world uh and but i'm thinking about like the people that seem very into this stuff i don't know if it's a very american thing to be into this idea of like i don't have control over what's happening and i'm trying to like exert control or like my way of sort of exerting control might be i'm seeing everything as like a video game that i'm participating in or like running um but i guess like she's sort of making this argument about like sort of like this erasure of asian cultures and uh it just kind of reminded me of just because it's like the last thing i was really looking at all the science fiction stuff and then watching this film again uh i can't make an exact connection because like it's not really about like race exactly but it does feel very like there was like it does seem like very gendered, right? Like there's like sort of like this school shooter comment that Emily makes, I think at some point, like this is like a school shooter fantasy or it's like maybe it's something to do with like uh, being used to being like, yeah, just like. Yeah, well, 95% of the people who answered our call fronteries were, were dudes. Yeah. You know, and so all four of the, you know, all, all, all four of the avatars are, mm-hmm. um, you know, and whether that's a function of, this idea um, connects more more powerfully with dudes, mm-hmm. or maybe we were just, or or maybe we just stayed um, really very close to home mm-hmm. with our outreach. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure what the answer is, though. In the nightmare, it broke down really fifty fifty, mm-hmm. um, and it was a simil- and it was a similar process for look for looking for people. Yeah, I wonder if it has something to do with like the way men don't try to think that like their bodies are restricting or maybe it has something to do with like a relationship with their bodies or like this idea like I kind of don't want this to be it and immortality or like mortality or just like maybe like just like your body is something to do with your social status or something like that. Maybe. Well, I mean, there's an ungenerous way I heard it described, which was that simulation theory appeals to men because it is a, um, it is a strategy of creation and reproduction that doesn't need women. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's interesting. Where, is that in a review or something? Or yeah, like- no, it was a conversation with somebody outside, uh, um, outside of the movie or, or, or possibly one of the conversations you know, within that mm-hmm. um, uh, part of the world. That's, I mean, completely unprovable, but a, a kind of a provocative mind bomb uh, to drop in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like that there is a definitely something, I think there's like a gendered angle to like the people that seem to re- get like my, my brother's really into it. My sister, who is her his twin, is not into this at all. So maybe I'm like, what are the inputs? Like, is it just the video game consumption or like, yeah, well, know, I know the tech in- did or what was it? You know? Well, the tech industry is dominated by men, but apparently... You know, a lot of that is not necessarily by choice, but because that's where the money is. Right. right. <laughs> so they, yeah. create, so they, uh, you know, excluded others. Do you, do you feel like I feel like one or two of these guys that were interviewed sort of like drop like the like oh I I went to Harvard or I'm an engineer and stuff like that. Do you think that's like they're trying to like be like I'm a rational person. This isn't crazy. Like I'm just trying to like you know set some like i'm an intelligent like it's sort of like i know this premise like i know things that other people don't know and that's my secret power is kind of like i think part of the appeal of the whole 
maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I, Alex is the one who talked about mm-hmm. being an engineer and I think going to Harvard. And I don't know if it was so much to um, um, promote his reliability as there's a little background on who I am. This right. is the way I think about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, I mean, you're free to draw what conclusions <laughs> you like. Yeah. I think definitely, I think everyone watch, should definitely watch the film and then like we can have a conversation about like what, what do you think is going on here? Because like I feel like there's got to be some like, there's some social things that are happening. Like, like this is like, like a kind of a newer idea, even though like ideas like reincarnation or like, you know, Plato's cave and stuff go way back. It's like, like uh, I'm trying to think of like in the 1800s, what the equivalent, I, people were maybe just like having the industrial revolution. So they're like, people are like automatons and like, you know, there's like science fiction about like robots. It's like early fears about technology from that time period. And now we're this, the stage that we're at where it's like, well, but I mean, but Plato's cave is thousands of years ago, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and Descartes yeah. too, and or, or well before the 1800s. Um, this kind of crosses into horror, I guess. I wasn't thinking about how this had a connection to horror, but in a way, like, well, you kind of have this weird true crime block in the middle when you deal with Joshua. Yeah. But it's like, I, I find a lot. I find a lot of these conversations very frightening, <laughs> you know. And and when I started finding, like, you know, when people are talking about the you know the npc stuff and then finding those videos of like bulldozers knocking crowds of people off off off, off of cliffs oh yeah i've seen i remember those things yeah that you know i found that stuff you know in, incredibly disturbing but you know i don't want to be too judgmental because i can imagine being a teenager mm-hmm. um let loose in that playground and some of the horrible some of the horrible things that i might have done uh- I'll tell you, like, I'm for some reason, my friend was making a video game and he was sort of showing it to us. And he's just like, oh, there's this free software you can just do to make 3D stuff. And so I, I downloaded this software at Blender and there's this tutorial about making a donut. And I just started trying to do the thing where you make a donut. And I was just like, I, I, I feel like I'm in it. I feel like a god right now. <laughs> I can create a donut. I'm like, this is so addictive. Like this idea that like I can just make this digital stuff. And like, so also when I was looking at the CJ, I'm just like, oh, one day I might be able to make like a little globular gray human being sitting on a grid or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a really weird moment where like all of the, um, in the reenactment scenes in those grid worlds, like all those characters were just sort of that gray slate mm-hmm. kind of clay material that, we didn't design any of those. There are, you know, if you were in presets. Yeah, if, that, if you're in, if you're into 3D animation, there are these sites you can go to, you know, and just buy models of, you know, if some somebody will design a car and then they'll upload it, you know, uh-huh. and people can buy it for, you know, ten to fifteen dollars or a thousand dollars, depending yeah. on how how well modeled it is. And you go to people, and it's you know like you're going to the animal shelter that you <laughs> scroll through hundreds of people who are all just sort of wiggling and looking at you and hoping that they'll get picked. <laughs> yeah, they might be versions of us. They might be the ghosts. Say, play me, play me, put me, <laughs> put me in the crowd scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, they're, well, like, they're like the people, well, I guess like it's in the boss baby, right? Um, where, but the, before they go, before, the, you know, this, or, you know, I don't know why I'm thinking of kids uh, animated movies, but. Soul? Yeah. That, soul, they have like all the souls before the. All the, you know, yeah. in that. I you know I guess it's the opposite of the afterlife, the pre-life, the pre-life, yeah. where the souls are hoping to go down to mm-hmm. earth. You know, and these are the characters who are hoping to be used in your animations to be pulled into your games, <laughs> the simulations. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a good summary of one aspect of simulation theory. Definitely, uh, everyone listening should watch a glitch in the matrix. It's available on Hulu. It's available uh, um, Blu-ray and uh, DVD Blu-ray, yeah. or. 
you know, if you're not on Hulu, you can like rent it off a pay-per-view for, you know, two or three bucks. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it's a great film. Thanks so much, Rodney, for coming sure. on Great to show. talk to you, George. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Subdoc at subdocpodcast.com. Our theme music was written by David Siegel, and our executive producer is Will Scoville. Our associate producer is Nick Coltis, and our editor is Karen Hogg. Donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash subdocpodcast. If you want to help out in other ways, please share this show with a friend. Join the Doc Talk and check out our hot takes, pictures, and videos on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We're Subdoc Podcast on all those platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts. Find Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on our site. Subtalk is by Doc fans for Doc fans. So if you want to advertise, got a film, or opinions to share, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you and what you're docking out on. Email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com.